Lord, we need you in this hour. We need your grace. We need your illumination. We need your spirit to work in our hearts and to open our minds to receive what you have prepared for us. Lord, I need you to deliver this word clearly so that the text would speak, Lord, so that you would speak through the text. I pray for every heart here that each one of us would hear what you have prepared for us. May you be glorified through this. We pray for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and we are in the final chapter. And today, we're going to be looking at the first six verses in sermon entitled, Spiritual Service. In the last 100 years or so, there have been much emphasis placed on the work of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostal movement began in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. And about 60 years later, there was a charismatic movement. And both of these movements elevate the Holy Spirit and place much emphasis on His work. Now, there's much discussion about supernatural gifts like speaking in tongues, miracles, healings, and such. And for this reason, many people, many Christians, they associate the work of the Spirit with the supernatural. Here's a question that I want us to ponder as we open this text. What does the work of the Holy Spirit look like in the church? Now, we don't want to deny that the Spirit of God works supernaturally in the church because He does. But does His work have to transcend natural laws so that we would say it is miraculous and supernatural? I read of a woman who came to a pastor and she said, Pastor, we need to see more signs and wonders. We just don't see enough. To which he said, ma'am, over there sits a woman who has been evicted with her children from her apartment. And I would consider it a sign and a wonder if you would take them in and house them for the next three months. That's supernatural. Now for several weeks now, as we've been working our way through the book of Galatians, we've been talking about the work of the Spirit or what the Spirit produces in us as believers. Now, the Holy Spirit supernaturally works in the lives of each one of us. And that is absolutely true. Is that not a miracle that a dead person becomes alive? And that's what happens when you get saved. Spiritually dead person is raised from the dead. And that happens because Spirit miraculously causes new birth. As we worked our way through the end of chapter 5 last few weeks... Is that not a miracle that those who used to engage in the things that Paul writes here, engage in immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and carousing in the things like these, all of a sudden these people begin to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that not a miracle? You see, in some sense, you can say that this is even a bigger miracle because, say, God does something supernatural. Somebody is supernaturally healed. And it's almost to be expected because God is all-powerful. He can do anything. But when you take a pagan who has been drunker and idolater, and all of a sudden this drunker and idolater now worships Christ and loves the saints, that is a miracle. And that is something that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Now, chapter 6 is not disconnected from chapter 5, particularly the first 10 verses of this chapter, 
they illustrate for us what spirit-led walk looks like. And what's interesting is that as we read this chapter and as we work our way through these verses, they're not filled with lofty ideas about supernatural entrance and in. It is not characterized by healings or speaking in foreign languages. No, the spirit-led walk is characterized by a humble and loving service of fellow believers. In effect, Paul is saying this. When believers treat one another in this way, you know that the Spirit of God is at work. That's why the proposition for our first six verses is this. Those who walk by the Spirit serve the body of Christ. Those who are led by the Spirit, those who walk by the Spirit, they will be characterized by spiritual service for the saints. Now we will look at verses 1 through 6 today and verses 7 through 10 next time. But here's what Paul commands believers if they are to walk by the Spirit. Three things we'll look at today based in first six verses. Number one, he's going to say, if you are spiritual, restore the sinful. That's verse one. Verses two through five, he's going to say, if you are spiritual, help the weak. And number three, if you are spiritual, verse six, share with those who lead. Join me as I read beginning in verse 25 of chapter 5. He says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For, when, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Let's begin with verse 1. If you are spiritual, restore the sinful. Verse 1 begins with brethren. Now again, this is a common refrain that Paul uses all the time in his writing. And so we are tempted to just fly over this. But notice he is talking to believers. It is significant that after everything Paul said in this book already, he says, brothers, Brethren, we don't use this word outside of the Bible, but it simply means brothers. It's an inclusive term. It means brothers and sisters, believers, those of you who are in this family. And this word here, as Paul opens this section, he's talking about your relationship within the family when you have been brought in. In fact, if you look at verse 10, notice how he closes the section. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He's saying that you have been brought into a family, God's family. The church is God's family where you have fellow brothers and sisters. And when the Spirit of God is at work in you, it will be evident in the way you treat your brothers and sisters. Now what's interesting is as we examine this verse further, you can see here clearly that Paul did not subscribe to higher theology, higher life theology. He did not believe that 
there will come a point in your Christian life when you will stop sinning. I mean, isn't this amazing? That the very first thing that Paul addresses when speaking of walking in the Spirit and speaking of living out in the Spirit, he's talking about dealing with sin. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you would think that in the church he could have said so many other things. And yet the very first subject that Paul addresses here is you will have to deal with sin in the body of Christ. Notice with this verse, Paul assumes that everyone will sin at one point or another. When your brother sins, he does not assume that if you completely surrender to the Spirit, that you will come to a place when you will not commit sin. No, everyone sins. Now, true, you will sin less, but you will never be sinless, right? As you mature, as you grow, some of these patterns of your old life will fall off, but you will still sin, and people will sin against you. Life on this side of eternity, we can say, is tainted by sin. Do not be surprised when someone in the church sins or you sin against someone else. That's why sin, if not dealt with, will affect the entire body. But you have to deal with sin. But here's a question that Paul brings up. How do you respond when your brother or a sister sins? Now again, this sin could be done against you or it could be done against someone else in the body. Now, because that person is your brother and your sister, you have a responsibility for that person. You know, your body, when one part of your body hurts, your entire body hurts. And that is the metaphor that is used all throughout Scripture. When you are in a body and someone else hurts, someone sins, that will affect you. And so you, as other members of the body, have responsibility to care for those who are in that situation. Now, what is the situation? Verse 1 says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass. Look at this word, caught. It could mean several different things. On the one hand, it could mean to be overtaken. You can imagine somebody is fleeing from sin, but sin just overtakes him and catches him. Another way to picture this is Satan sets a trap for you. And you weren't aware of it. You weren't paying attention. And you are caught by your sin. You fall into it. Other translations translate this as to be discovered in sin. For example, Ned Bible says, brothers and sisters, if a person is discovered in some sin. Now, it could be a surprise attack, or it could be that someone was just playing with fire, being too confident that he will not fall into the trap. Now, the use of the word trespass is also important here. As you know, Bible has many different words that talk about sin. You can miss the mark. This word trespass literally means to cross the line. There's a line here that says, do not cross over. You know, we talk about trespassing. Do not cross over this line. You cannot go here. Now, Scripture lays out the parameters within one ought to walk. And when you step over those parameters, you trespass the law of God. Now, these clear, clear lines are identified in the Bible. These are not our preferences. These are not our ideas or our rules that we set for other people. In fact, remember in Matthew 18 when Jesus lays out a process of restoring your brother who is sinning? He begins that process by saying, if your brother sins. Now, before you're going to go and you're going to deal with that sin or you're going to go and confront that person, you better make sure that what he actually did is sin. It's not that he crossed over some rule that you don't like or some preference you might have and you're going to go and confront him about it. 
No, you got to make sure that you have a backing. He says, if your brother sins as defined by Scripture. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And notice he does not define categories of sin here because he says if he's caught by any, in any trespass, he doesn't distinguish here between the kinds of sin. Well, with this, you can let that go. Don't worry about it. That's not a big deal. That one right there, oh, you better take care of that. No, if your brother here, as he says, is if anyone is caught in any trespass, anyone or any, it does not matter what position the person occupies, whether it's low or whether it's high. It does not matter the kind of sin that person fell into. You have responsibility. You see, this tells us here that as believers, we can commit any and every sin except blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Don't ever think that you are somehow beyond some sin. In fact, if you need to see what kind of sins you can commit, well, just go back and read the deeds of the flesh. I mean, wasn't that written to the church? Wasn't that written? He says, hey, when the Spirit of God is not at work, when one is acting out in the flesh, this is what this is going to look like. You're going to do these things. Some of them are nasty, as Tony walked us through last time, right? And he says, as a believer, you are capable of committing those sins. Now, when he says here, if your brother is caught in any trespass, this does not give you a right to be a righteousness police or someone's accountability partner or everyone's accountability partner. That is not your calling. It is not your spiritual gift or your calling to sift through people's lives looking for sin and transgressions. That's not your calling. That's not what you've been called to. But if for one reason or another the Lord permits you and puts you in a situation where you see your brother committing actual sins, you need to go help him. You see, those righteous policemen in the church, they're the least likely to help a person who's struggling because they're looking at that person from way up top, and, you know, it's hard to see somebody down there. They can't help. So how do you respond when your brother sins? Or your sister sins. Paul says in verse 1, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now Paul tells us what is to be done. He tells us who is to do it. And he tells us how to do it. Now let's look at each of these questions. First, what is to be done in this situation? Here's the command of verse 1. This is the main command of verse 1. He says, restore such a one. The word restore, it means to mend. It means to repair something that is broken. The word was used for setting broken bones. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, this word is used for mending nets or repairing nets. Listen to this. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. That's the same word. And he called them. So you would go fishing, and as you're trying to catch fish, your nets would rib. And so before you go for your next catch, you sit there and you repair your nets. You restore your nets so that they're back into their original order so that you're able to go fishing again. That's the idea that you have here. Now imagine a country road with ditches on both sides. Now each side of the road is marked with clear lines that tell you that it is dangerous to fall off the cliff. Now imagine you're traveling down that road and you see your brother or a sister ended up in the ditch on one side or on another. Now we don't know why they ended up in the ditch. It could be that 
They just didn't notice the turn. They weren't expecting the road to turn, and so they just fell off the road. Or it could be somebody thought that, man, I can stay real close to the line, and I'm not going to sin because I'm a good driver, right? And it could be that, that they ended up in the ditch because they were callous. They were, they, they were not paying attention. But whatever the reason is, they ended up in the ditch. But now, the person could be just on the other side of the lane, or he could be a quarter mile down, downhill because he was so reckless. So what do you do when you see such person? And this is what Paul is saying here. Restore such a one. If your brother or a sister ended up in the ditch, you have a responsibility to go and help that brother. So if we're going to say restoring that brother, what does that mean? you got to pull him out of the ditch and you got to bring him back on the road so that they stay within the lanes. That's what he's saying. That is your job as a Christian. What are you to do? You are to restore them. No doubt you've seen restoration videos, right? There are people who are restoring old houses, people who restore old furniture or old watches. And so what they're down to, they're trying to clean them up, wash them out, you know, polish them, so that somebody looks at it's like, man, that's, that looks like new. And that's the idea here. The idea is somebody was walking down the road, and this is a brother or a sister. This is one who was with you in the church. This is one who was worshiping with you. This is one who was serving with you. And now he ended up in the ditch, and he's doing what he's not supposed to do. He's sinning. He's engaged in that activity. And what he's saying here is that you're going to go after that person in order to take him out of that ditch and bring them back on the straight and narrow. That's what you're supposed to do. Restore them back. Restore them to their relationship with the Lord and restore them to their relationship with their brothers and sisters. Now this leads us to the second question. Who's supposed to do this? Who's supposed to do this? Paul answers this question by saying, you who are spiritual. Now this word is thrown around today and people say things like, you know, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. That is not what Paul is talking about here. To be spiritual is not just to be aware of some higher power or have some higher goals in life. To be spiritual is connected to chapter 5 where Paul explained what it is to be spiritual. It is to walk in the Spirit. A spiritual person is the one who is led by the Spirit and the one who is walking by the Spirit. Now two aspects are very important. It's a person who lives by the Spirit and the person who walks by the Spirit. Now, when we say a person who lives by the Spirit, first of all, we're saying that the person who's going to restore others must be a believer. To live by the Spirit means that you are converted. Because unbelievers do not have the Spirit of God. Therefore, by definition, they cannot be spiritual. They cannot be spiritual. And all believers, they have the Spirit of God in them who enables them to walk according to the commands of Scripture. You see, an unconverted person... He can help you modify your behavior in some ways, but he cannot restore you back into a right relationship with God. Why? Because he himself is in the ditch. How is he going to help you if he himself is in the ditch? He's, a, he's in the same position. He does not have the Spirit of God. So you must go to, or you must be one who is converted, who has the Spirit of God. But not only that, you must also walk in the Spirit to do this work. That's why he says, if you are spiritual, those of you who are spiritual to do this, which means that not all believers ought to engage in this work, or at least not all the time, because there are seasons in your life when you're not going to help somebody, but you're rather going to hurt somebody instead of helping them. Now, how do you know if you're walking in the Spirit? When he says, you who are spiritual, how do you know that? Well, go back and look at the fruit of the Spirit. Is the Spirit producing that fruit in your life? 
if you are walking in the Spirit, if you are in the right relationship with the Lord, then he says you would be in position to minister to those who are in that situation. MacArthur makes a helpful distinction between maturity and spirituality. Listen to this. It should be noted that whereas maturity is relative, depending on one's progression and growth, spirituality is an absolute reality that is unrelated to growth. At any point in the life of a Christian, from the moment of his salvation to his glorification, he is either spiritual, walking in the Spirit, or fleshly, walking in the deeds of the flesh. Maturity is the cumulative effect of the times of spirituality. So why are we saying this? We're saying here that even a mature person could end up in a ditch and be in no position to help someone else who fell in a ditch. It is the person who is walking by the Spirit. So you might have somebody who is a young believer who who does not have years of walking with the Lord. But at this time, he is walking in the Spirit, and he's going to be better equipped to minister to somebody in that situation. Rather, somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, but for whatever reason is in the ditch himself at this time. Now, Scripture commands us all to walk in the Spirit. We looked at 525 before. If we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit, which means to live by the Spirit is to be positionally righteous. You live by the Spirit, which means you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Now, if that is a reality that is true of you, he says you must manifest that by the way you walk. If you are spiritually alive, let the Spirit of God work in and through you so that you manifest the the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you are such person who is walking by the Spirit and therefore spiritual, He says, you must always be ready and willing to help people and to do this work of restoration. So what are you to do? You are to restore. Who's to do it? Those who are spiritual. Thirdly, how are we to do it? How are you going to restore such person? Two instructions Paul gives in this verse. Number one, he says, restore in the spirit of gentleness. Now, if you remember from last time, gentleness is... The fruit of the Spirit. Now Paul mentions it here because the temptation you will have is to be harsh with someone in that situation. What is gentleness? Another way gentleness is translated is meekness, but it does not mean weakness. Gentleness and meekness, we're talking about power under control. What is the opposite of gentleness? It is anger. There's a desire for revenge. You see, a gentle person is a humble person, but at the same time, he's not a pushover. A gentle person is not just like, you know what, I know you're struggling, I'm just going to come along. No, this person is actually strong on his conviction, and he's going after someone who's in that situation, and he's trying to pull him out. He's trying to do everything he can to restore him back to the place where he was before. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, this gentle Jesus made a whip and cleared the tem- temple. Want an illustration of what gentle restoration looks like? Turn with me to John chapter 8. We're going to be preaching through John, we'll talk about this passage. But I wanted to use this as an illustration because here we see Jesus who said that he is gentle illustrating for us how he would restore 
a sinner who has fallen into the ditch. John 8, verse 2, we read this. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, scribes and Pharisees, they were concerned about sin in other people's lives, of course, right? They bring this woman, and they said, we caught her in the very act. Now, you don't have to be an expert on adultery to realize that she was not there alone, probably. Where's the man? Is this like selective outrage? You see, they were, they were concerned about, they weren't concerned about this woman. They claim that they're concerned about sin. They claim that they're concerned about the law. They claim that they're concerned about righteousness. Lord, we have to do what is right. And notice, they even have Bible on their side. They come and they cite the Bible, verse 5. Now, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that he might have grounds, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Notice their goal is not to care for this woman. Their goal is not to love her. Their goal is not to restore her. Their goal, no, their goal is to elevate themselves. Look how righteous we are and look at her and what are you going to do? And we're going to use her as a pawn in the game that we're playing. How did Jesus respond? Verse 6, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. I mean, I don't know what he wrote. Maybe a list of their sins? perhaps? Possible? But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left all alone. And a woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? He said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now Jesus cared about sin. But Jesus also cared about this woman. Did he not? It's not that Jesus says, you know what, forget what Moses said. Forget what the law says. Don't worry about that. No, but Jesus cared about the woman. So when we're talking about gentle restoration, it's not you like the Pharisee and scribe thinking that you are so high way up there, you are beyond the sin. I would never have committed that. How dare you? If you approach it the way Pharisees did, you will never be able to do this work. That is not the work of the Spirit. Even caring for someone in that situation requires gentleness, which is the fruit of the Spirit, which is necessary for restoration. So one, you must be gentle with such people. Because, you know, self-righteousness is I mean, innate to all of us. Because we all start to think, like you hear of people who committed certain sins, and you start to think, like, man, how horrible are they? No, you got to remember, and you got to be gentle. You, you need this command. I need this command that as you're dealing with people who are in sin, be gentle. Not only that, he gives the second instruction. He says, restoring 
while looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Here's an instruction. Always remember that you are susceptible to temptation. Here's the attitude that all of us should adopt when we're dealing with people who are sinning. But for the grace of God, go I. I mean, what is your attitude, like I said, when you hear of some person fell into immorality or some sin? What is the first thought that comes to your head? Man, what a weasel. I would never have done such a thing. I mean, how could he do that? Or is it, but for the grace of God, go I. You see, do not look at others from on high as if somehow you are superior or as if somehow you are beyond that sin. Now, do not hear me saying that we don't deal with sin because we're all sinners. Yes, we're all sinners, and we're all called to come and help people. Listen, we're all broken people helping other broken people to be restored. And that is the attitude that we should have. It's not that we are way up there on high, moved on past everybody, and then we're showing grace to people because we're willing to step down in a system. No, we are all broken people. So here's the warning. When you're going into the ditch to pull your brother you might get dirty, and you must be aware of that. Do not think that you are beyond temptation, even with the same sin that you're helping your brother. If he fell into some sin, and you go there, and you're trying to assist him, you're trying to be an accountability partner for him, you're trying to pull him up and restore him, don't think like, I would never commit that, and I will never commit that. No, he says, when you're going to go down to the ditch, you might get dirty because it's dirty down there. Dealing with sin is a dirty business. And he says, you must be aware that there is danger for you. One commentator put it this way, the moment we think we are beyond or above certain sins, we expose ourselves to greater temptation. The moment we think, I could never do that, that is the most dangerous place to be. But if you recognize that, man, yes, that could tempt me. I can fall here. And when you are aware of that, then you would put up certain walls. You would stay away from certain things because you know, I am susceptible to this. So don't ever become arrogant thinking that you have somehow moved past sin, that you no longer sin. And you can, no, recognize that, yes, we live in a broken world where you will sin and others will sin against you and you're going to go after them graciously and at the same time cautiously knowing that you are still a man. You are still a woman who can sin. If you're spiritual, first command, restore the sinful. Now we will know that this church walks by the Spirit when we care for one another enough to go after people who find themselves in that situation. You will know that the Spirit of God is at work when someone cares for your soul. When somebody calls you or when someone comes alongside of you and says, hey, brother, I think I see here, I think, you know, you, need, you, need, you don't need to do this. You need to go there. How can I help you with this? That is the work of the Spirit, and that's what, that what must happen in the body. Let's go on to number two. If you are spiritual, you must help the weak. If you're spiritual, help the weak. Now in verses 2 through 5, Paul broadens the obligations that we have to the body. Now by way of application, this still relates to restoring the sinners, but it does not have to. Now here's the second command in verse 2. He says, bear one another's burden. 
and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is a call for you to be involved in other people's life. Now, you see, we're not created to be autonomous islands living on our own, separated from one another. No, we already said we're talking about a household. We're talking about a family. We're talking about people who live with one another. Now, when he says here, bear one another's burdens, burden speaks of something that is heavy and difficult to carry. What he's saying here is, you will have people in your body who will go through times when they do not have strength to deal with challenges that come their way. It might be a challenging relationship. It might be a financial problem in somebody's life. It might be a loss of a loved one. It might be a prodigal child. It might be fill in the blank, whatever it is. It is a diff- difficult and challenging time in the life of your brother or sister, and it's almost like he can't do it himself. He needs someone to come alongside and help him. You know, ever been moving? When you're moving, there are certain things that you can just move yourself, and there are some big pieces of furniture. You're like, no, I need somebody to help me. That's the idea here. You have this burden. You have something that you can't lift yourself, and you need somebody to come alongside of you and help you with that. We must come around such people in these times in order to help them carry their burdens. And again, as a body, we do this in many different ways. You can just come alongside and just pray for somebody. That's carrying their burden. You can come alongside of them and encourage them. Perhaps you can financially assist somebody who is in need. Or maybe sometimes you just need to be there with somebody and just listen. Don't say anything. Sometimes you need that. And so in order for you to do that, he says you must rub shoulders with people in the body so that you know what their needs are, you know what their burdens are, and you know that the Spirit of God is at work when each person recognizes that, hey, I have a role to play in this person's life and in that person's life, and I can assist them in this way or that way. And notice what he says here. When you carry those burdens, when you come alongside and you care for people in those challenging situations, we will fulfill the law of Christ. We dealt with this before. What is the law of Christ? Summarized in one word. Love. You will show love. And you will show love in many different ways. Like I said, it could be buying something for someone or it could be just being there with them or it could be praying for them, encouraging them, building them up. In many different ways, we can come alongside and assist them. But you see, in order to do that, we must lay aside pride which makes us intolerant and self-righteous. You see, you will not be that person if you are arrogant and you're proud. You see, when you begin to think that you have it all together, you start looking down on others. That's why Paul gives warning in verse 3. He says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Ever met such people? I mean, their perception of themselves does not reflect reality in any way, and yet they are oblivious to it. Came across a story about Muhammad Ali. He was on the plane preparing for takeoff when the flight attendant comes up to him and says, Sir, put on your seatbelt. To which he responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she said, Superman don't need airplane. Buckle up. You see, you could be so arrogant that you begin to think you're a superman. But if you can't fly, you're not a superman. How many people you know in spiritual life, they think they're spiritual supermen, 
They're marriage experts when their own marriage is falling apart. They could be your financial advisor. Don't worry about the fact that they filed for bankruptcy four times. They could be parenting specialists, but their own kids don't want anything to do with them. They're leadership gurus, but no one follows them. And you see, in their mind, they're like flying in the clouds, and barely once in a while, their feet touch the ground, right? And so they're looking down at everybody because they have it all together, and everyone else doesn't. Because they consider themselves as such, they're in no position to help anyone. Now, it is helpful, and as Paul tells us in this passage, it is biblical to stop and examine yourself. Notice Paul says, each one must examine his own work. Examine what? Examine his own work. So Paul is saying, listen, what is the fruit of your life? What do you have to show for it? What fruit can you point to? Now, he's not talking about the value of your bank account, or he's not talking about the size of your ministry. But here's the question. Are people propelled towards Christ-likeness because of you? I mean, ask yourself that question. And it doesn't matter whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a pastor. Ask yourself that question. Are people propelled towards Christ-likeness? Are people more Christ-like when they hang out with me or because of my influence on them or not? Now, this goes for everybody, and anybody can evaluate themselves like that. Now, we all do not have the same influence because the Lord gives each one of us a position. But guess what? We are all responsible for the place in which the Lord has put us. And the Lord is not going to ask you, why weren't you as influential as that guy? No, he's going to say, what did you do with the influence that I gave you? In the position where you are, what fruit can you point to to justify your assessment of yourself? What can you point to? Now, you might evaluate yourself genuinely in the eyes of God, and you will see that, listen, I fall short in many ways. Should you despair? No, welcome to Christianity. Welcome, why? Because we all fall short, and that's why no one, not one of us can look down on another person as if, you know, we have it perfectly and all together. No, there is only one person who has everything together, Jesus Christ. But what if you do a self-assessment and you see some areas of your life where there's success, there's growth? Paul says, verse 4, then he will have a reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and in regard, not in regard to another. Now, obviously here, boasting is not sinful because Paul says, hey, it's not sinful. It's not condemned. He will boast in regard to himself. Now, you see, if you make self-assessment, if you take inventory of your life and you see fruit of your life that, oh, this is happening. The Lord is blessed in this area and this is great. This needs some work on right here. But what do you do with those areas? It's the Spirit of God who produces those things in you. And you boast not in the fact that, oh, I'm so awesome because I'm able to do this. No, you're able to do this because the Spirit of God works in and through you. And because the Spirit of God allows you to have some good influence in some area or to have success in other area of life, he gets all the glory because he's the one who produces that in you. He gets the glory. Remember Corinthians who were proud? And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And he says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Your marriage is graced? Why do you boast as if you're so great? It's the grace of God. Your children are doing well? Well, praise the Lord. What do you have that you did not receive? You made a lot of money and you're so proud of it? 
What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Everything that you have, you receive by grace, and therefore, he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. So whatever is messed up in us, that's our problem. Whatever is good, that's his glory, right? And so Paul's saying, listen, you need to assess yourself properly. When you assess yourself properly in light of the word of God, and notice here, he says, he will boast in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Listen, when you make assessment of yourself, compare yourself with him, not with another brother. Don't be like a Pharisee who compare himself with a tax collector and pass his assessment with flying colors. And we often do that. Oh, you know what? Oh, look, look at that family. Compared to them, my family, oh, it's great. Oh, look at my personal walk. Well, comp- no, don't compare yourself to them. Compare yourself to him. And when you compare yourself to him, you will always see areas in which you fall short. And when you do that, you will never point your finger at somebody else and say, hey, look at this guy, man, what a weasel. No, because you fall short. Compare yourself to his standard. And in the areas where you see success, he deserves the glory because it is his spirit who works in and through you. And notice how Paul concludes this point in verse 5. He says, For each one will bear his own load. Now this seems to contradict verse 2, where Paul says we must come alongside other people and assist them. But you see, some people might take verse 2 and go to the other extreme and say, well, you guys are commanded to carry my burdens, so here they are. Take them and carry them for me. Now notice here that the word load is different from the word burden in verse 2. This word load, it was used for a pack that a soldier would carry. So in other words, you can, you can think of it this way. There is a backpack that belongs to you that you must carry, and no one will carry it for you. And no one should carry it for you. And then there are some loads that you can't carry yourself and someone needs to come and assist you. You see, the command to bear one another's burden does not alleviate you from the responsibility to carry your own backpack. That is what he's saying. You see, there are things that no one will and no one should do for you. Say you're a 25-year-old, healthy, basement dweller who wants everybody to take care of you because you don't want to work. The answer is no. Didn't Paul say, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. But what if you are a woman with three children who has been abandoned by her husband? The answer is yes. Because we need to come alongside of that person and help her carry her burden. Not a 25-year-old who can work and doesn't work. No. So we need to know the difference between the burden and the load. And you need to figure out that in your life. And because if you confuse those two, then you're going to tell that everybody that they must take care of you. Or you might be so arrogant to think that you have to do it all yourself and there is never a time when somebody can come alongside of you and help. Now we have to be able to decipher that and figure out, well, is this a load or is this a burden? Does this person need help with this? Should I help them with this or not? Because, you know, we can also cause people to stay in that condition because we want to take care of all the little things that they themselves should take care of. So that requires wisdom. But the point here is, when you are in the body of Christ, if you are a spiritual person, spirit and power walk causes you to see people in the church that have burdens and have needs. And the Lord supplies you with grace to come alongside of them and assist them in those times. So if you are spiritual, restore those who are sinful If you're a spiritual, help the weak. Finally, 
If you are spiritual, share with those who lead. Look at verse 6. The one who's taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, sometimes you come to a verse and you don't necessarily immediately see the connection between what came before and what goes after. And this might be one such case. Now, you might say, well, why did Paul include this instruction here? Now, we know that there is a reason. Because Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he just had a random thought and you're like, well, I should put that in here. That's not what happened. Now, the concept here of voluntarily supporting those who are preaching and teaching was in some sense radical. I mean, think back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you didn't have to put up a collection to support your pastors. In the Old Testament, they charged taxes. You had to pay a certain tax every three years, and they would take that and they would support Levites. In the New Testament, it's not that there are some taxes that you can take in order to support the ministers, but it was the voluntary collections that believers would voluntarily give in order to support those who labor in the gospel. But perhaps the situation here is that these people stopped doing that. These false teachers came in, perhaps influenced them, and maybe now, rather than supporting the pastors who were there when Paul was there, now they took away the support from them, and maybe they're supporting these false teachers. Now, whatever the context is, or whatever the reason is why Paul is writing this, notice this is all in the context of serving. And notice it is serving everybody in the body. It is serving the body, serving the person who's in the ditch. And in this case, he's talking about serving those who teach Now notice the word taught here is used twice in this text because the text reads, the one who's taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. That's where we get the word catechism. So he's basically saying the one catechized is to share all good things with the one who catechizes him. Now the word share here, you know this word koinonia. We have koinonia ministry, fellowship. And so it's more than just financial, but it does include financial support. So within the body, Paul is saying there has to be a mutual care for one another. Pastors have responsibility to teach the word. And notice the goal that we have, or that we must have, as the text says, the one who teaches him, we are to teach you what? The word. Our job is not to entertain you. Our job is not just to tell you interesting stories. No, if you're a pastor, you have a commission. Remember 2 Timothy 4.1? Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now this whole idea of reprove, rebuke, exhort, that's part of verse 1 because that is part of your job, that's part of your responsibility is to go and help those who are struggling in that situation. Notice, if one is faithfully and consistently doing this work, this is going to require much time and much labor. And that's why those, he says, who benefit from such ministry will voluntarily support such person so he can devote himself completely to ministry of the word. We have examples of this all throughout the Bible. You remember Paul? Paul comes to Corinth, and he is building tents in order to support his ministry. But in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, it says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. The reason why he was able to quit his job 
It's because they brought a financial gift from Macedonia, from the churches who supported Paul's ministry. And now, rather than building tents, Paul was working with the Word. Paul was studying the Word. Paul was preparing the Word. Paul was preaching the Word because that was his call. That was his mission. And ultimate concern here is not money. Ultimate concern that Paul has here is about the gospel because isn't that what the whole book is about? It is about the gospel of grace that must go forth. And the way gospel of grace goes forth is because God calls individuals. He gifts them and then the church supports them so that they can labor in the work and they can proclaim the gospel of grace. Now as we conclude here, it is an opportunity for our soul to just examine our hearts in light of these verses. Do we treat our brothers and sisters with gentleness when they fall in sin? You know of people who struggle with sin. Might be for periods of time. Might be a one-time thing. What is our attitude toward them? Does verse 1 describe you? First of all, are you a spiritual person? Are you walking by the Spirit? Are you even in position to help such person? And when you are, are you going to them with gentleness, caring for the soul, wanting to bring them back to the straight and narrow. Is this not how you want to be treated? Because you know what? You and I might be in the ditch one time. And we would want people to come to us and gently help us out rather than sit as judges upon us. Now, if we want to be treated that way, should we not do the same? Do we care enough about people to go after them? I mean, when you see somebody doing something that they should not be doing, do you love them enough to go after them? Because Paul says, if you are spiritual, that's what you're going to do. What about the people in the church who are struggling? It might not be sin. It might be just difficult situations that they're facing. Do we do what Paul commands us here, and are we carrying their burdens? You see, in order to do that, you must rub shoulders with them. If you just come on Sunday, and you sit here for an hour and 15 minutes, and you walk out, and you see no one until the next Sunday, you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to minister because you need to rub shoulders with people. You need to know people. You need to get to know somebody. So, hey, how can I serve you? How can I assist you? That's what it requires. Are we willing to give generously to the church so that those who serve would be taken care of? You know, let us not live out the Baptist saying, probably heard this, Lord, you keep them humble and we keep them poor. That's how many people approach this. This is not the teaching of the Bible. And this is not the way of the Spirit. The Spirit commands the church to give sacrificially so that the work would continue. What is the point of all this? Those who walk in the Spirit will serve the body of Christ. And that extends from the brother in the ditch to a brother in the pulpit. We will look at each person and figure out the needs that they have and we would be willing to sacrifice our time and our resources in order to go and serve them. Why? Because the Spirit of God is at work in us. Let us pray. Father, we ask that this would be true of Wholesome Bible Church. We ask that we would have that heart to care for every single person that you put in our midst. Lord, we are all broken And so we ask that you would use us in each other's life in order to come along and love and care and gently restore us back to your image. We thank you for your word, for your glory we pray this. Amen.